And insofar as uh, faith in, in any institution uh, depends on uh, some kind of, of admiration for what that institution has achieved, if the record of the West is indeed uh, simply a litany of racism, oppression, exploitation, etc., slavery, uh, then who would have faith in the West's future? In episode five of this podcast in October 2020, the late George Shoplin made a lucid observation about what at bottom set his native Hungary apart from his adoptive Great Britain. Hungary, unlike the UK, has no post-colonial guilt, intoned the retired academic and member of the European Parliament. Shoplin meant by this that the nationalist politics practiced by conservative Prime Minister Viktor Orban are in some way a function of Hungary's past, which unlike that of Britain, had not involved colonizing other countries, but rather being colonized by foreign powers, be it Austria or the Soviet Union. Finally casting off the yoke of foreign domination with the USSR's downfall, Hungary went on to engage with the world in an unapologetic way, not encumbered by the guilt of having wronged others, demanding instead its rightful place in the concert of nations. What did Schopfler mean about the UK, however? The post-colonial guilt that he diagnosed is indirectly the subject of Professor Nigel Bigger's book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, which attempts, in, in Nigel's own words, a new assessment of Britain's colonial record. Nigel claims that the post-1945 world order is being challenged internally by the, by the decolonization movement ignited across the Anglosphere, which is seemingly an attempt to atone for the sins of empire, but which is, which is in fact corroding the West's self-confidence by retelling the history of colonialism as a litany of racism, exploitation, and murderous violence. Nigel tests this indictment, offering a moral inquest into the colonial past, forensically contesting damaging falsehoods and thereby helping to rejuvenate faith in the West's future. So to discuss today the nature and causes of post-colonial guilt, we have with us Professor Nigel Bigger, the Regis Professor Emeritus of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford, along with Prof Professor Felipe Fernandez Armesto, the William P. Reynolds Professor of History at, the no at Notre Dame University. Aside from being a world-renowned expert of colonialism in his own right, Professor Fernandez Armesto has developed an expertise on Spanish colonialism in the Americas, which will allow us to extend the scope of our conversation to other latitudes. So on with my first question, uh, Nigel. Uh, in your conclusion, you cite uh, Marjorie uh, Perham, who famously wrote in 1961 that to attempt to judge an empire would be rather like approaching an elephant with a tape measure. Yet, uh, as you argue in the book, in this age of anti-colonial politics, we are compelled to rebuke the arguments depicting the empires of the past as irredeemably racist, exploitative, and violent. Uh, you also get into some of this problem, but let me uh, put it as a question to you from the get-go. Why should we reassess the morality of empires, and how do we go about doing it? Nigel. So, Harry, the, the um, reason why this matters is because, um, as you've alluded to, um, no one is interested in non-white, non-European empires. So no one cares about the extensive empires of... of um, uh, Muslim powers in the um, medieval period. No one cares about ancient empires or present Chinese empire or Zulu or Comanche empire. The focus is on European empires and especially the, the, the British, which raises the question, why? Um, my answer is that um, the reason for the focus on, on Western empires, white empires, uh, is that this um, the critique of, of empire, which has become acute in recent years, is in effect uh, an assault on the record of the West. And therefore, anyone who cares about uh, the record of the West um, should care about this issue. And insofar as uh, faith in, in any institution uh, depends on uh, some kind of, of admiration for what that institution has achieved, if the record of the West is indeed uh, simply a litany of racism, oppression, exploitation, etc., slavery, uh, then who would have faith in the West's future? I suppose I should make clear here that the, the bits of the West I have in mind are, of course, Britain, but then also uh, Canada, uh, Australia, and New Zealand, all of whom uh, were parts of the British Empire. Of course, uh, Americans 
have, have no investment in the British Empire, uh, uh, but uh, important parts of the West, the English-speaking parts uh, of, um, of the world, uh, do have an investment. Yes, and uh, so it, um, in your answer, Nigel, you've just alluded to the fact that there's this difference. Uh, you know, no other empire is being as scrupulously scrutinized as the British Empire. And I wanted to put the question to Felipe now. Um, would you broadly agree with that assessment? Do you think that the Spanish Empire, for instance, has not been subject to as much scrutiny as the British Empire? Well, I'd say over the whole period of its existence and ever since the Spanish Empire has been subjected to far more scrutiny. It was around for far longer and therefore had far more time to be scrutinized. But I, I do agree with Nigel, that if you are going to scrutinize empires in moral terms, and I mean, I leave that to him. He's an ethicist. I'm an historian. I'm not really interested in moral scrutiny. I'm interested in establishing the facts and in writing history vs. eigentlichkeitsness as it really happened. But if you do want to scrutinize empires or the states we call empires morally, you can't limit that scrutiny only to white empires, because empire is not a white vice. It is, unfortunately, a human habit. And overwhelmingly, most empires have not been those of what we now consider to be Western countries. They've existed all over the world for you know at least well certainly for thousands of 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 years by the normal understanding of the kind of what a, what a state properly called an empire is like and in the early modern period you know there are, by my reckoning there are at least 30 states around the world that historians commonly call empires with the overwhelming majority of those were founded by uh, indigenous asian african and american dynasties and not by uh, arab as well but not not by um, Europeans, they, they're very much in the in the minority in this category. Uh, as for whether um, the British have come in for an unfair share of scrutiny, to some extent, I mean, I I, I feel that you can understand this because it was a very big empire and and it encompassed really more diversity of environments and cultures than any other in its day. But the Spanish Empire in the early modern period as a pre-industrial empire was unique in its range. It encompassed more of the world, more different biomes, more different environments, more different cultures than any other before or in its day. So it was comparably conspicuous in its day. And of course, it was scrutinized a parti pris, mainly by Protestant adversaries, especially English ones, who condemned it unfairly and wrongly for crimes of oppression, exploitation and abuse that never really took place. Yeah. Well, I, I think this, this uh, first round of questions really sets the tables up quite nicely for the conversation because you do seem to agree that there's an undue and unfair fixation on European empires in, in when it comes to the moral reassessment, as you've mentioned. Uh, but I think there, there, this is... Well, can I interrupt you, uh, if you don't mind, Jorge, because I, I don't altogether um, endorse that. I, I think that even within Europe, there's a lot of unfair selectivity. It's very interesting that you know, you, you, you started off with that remark about, about Hungary having no post-colonial guilt. Of course, the Hungarians have been an imperial people at various stages of their history, and they were you know, collaborators in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in taking over other people's territory. That's why Hungary was stripped of Transylvania in the settlement that followed the First World War. So even within Europe, there's a lot of selectivity with some people getting the blame and others being exempt. We don't hear an awful lot, for example, about the Swedish Empire, which was you know, just as involved in slavery as the British one, for example. We don't even hear very much about the Irish and Norwegian participation in other people's empires. And the Irish were very complicit in, or many Irish people were very complicit in the British Empire, just as many Norwegians were complicit in those 
the Danes and the Swedes. But some people, you know, just get the brickbats and others escape. And I don't think there's any rational explanation for that. I, I do agree with Nigel that there's an anti-Western agenda work here, which has got nothing to do with historical fact and everything to do with currently modish ideologies. But even, you know, in applying those ideologies, the critics of empire are inconsistent. And in my opinion, that inconsistency betrays both their moral shabbiness and their lack of genuine righteousness in their motivation. Philippe, could I just interject and, uh, and ask, I mean, you rightly say, of course, that Spanish empire has been controversial within Spain for a long time, as indeed have all European empires for some long time. Uh, my question really is, is, is whether right now um, colonialism is a subject of controversy in Spain in the way that colonialism is now a subject of controversy in, in Britain. Because my hunch is that the, uh, the salience of this issue in Britain right now has something to do with uh, are being an English-speaking country and being subject to American influences because I, I think it's the, I suspect it's the American obsession with race uh, that has been uh, transported across the Atlantic to uh, to Britain that has given this a salience here. But but how, is colonialism a, a, a big topic of controversy in Spain now? Well, not so much because Spain doesn't have quite such a big. Um, counter-colonial population of people from its former territories as Britain does. And most of those who people who are in Spain from former territories, although some, many of them are from the former Moroccan protectorate and from Equatorial Guinea, most of them are from Latin America. And that's been independent of Spain for a very long time now, since the 1820s. So the rancor isn't quite as uh, bitter within Spain. But within the Spanish-speaking world, uh, it's a major problem because it, it poisons relations between Spain and, and Spanish, formerly Spanish American republics. I took part in a in a, a an event a few years ago designed to bridge this gap, and it was a total disaster. Um, and, and 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 of course, in the United States, which is you know to a great extent a Hispanic country, the issue is very prominent and the you know besmirching of of uh, the reputations of former spanish contributors to the making of the united states the tearing down of their their statues the defiling of their their monuments the the obliteration of their their names from toponyms and um and commemorative uh, buildings, uh, all of those things are a major industry for the woke in the United States at the moment. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, um, my view is partly informed by my ignorance about discussions on the European continent. I'm aware that uh, 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 colonialism and decolonization has been a controversy in France, I think, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so, I, I, of course, it, uh, um, any European country that has had an overseas empire, I think, is is likely to, to, to be discussing these issues. But um, my understanding of um, the salience of the issue of colonialism among the British uh, at, at the moment, and I suspect the Canadians and Australians too, to some extent, is that what's happened is that um, with, with the, um, the, the, the murder of uh, George Floyd uh, two years ago and uh, the resurgence of the Black Lives uh, movement, Black Lives Matter movement, um, that uh, transported across the Atlantic uh, with lightning speed, uh, so that, that immediately uh, we had um, a lot of activity by anti-racist groups in, in Britain. Um, and um, I remember well seeing a photograph of a, a, a white English woman protesting at a Black Lives Matter event, holding a placard saying, disarm the police, disarm the police. Now, uh, uh, those of you, those, those people who know Britain know that our police aren't armed. <laughs> but my, my point is this, that, that, um, that, that, that the, the, um, the press in this country and, and um, many educated people often uh, uh, fail to, to recognize that Britain is not the US. And that um, although we've had uh, problems with racism in our country, 
the history of racial relations in this country is not the same as that in, in, in the US. But we forget that. And so, so the story has uh, been propagated that, like the US, Britain is systemically racist. And we are systemically racist partly because uh, we have this colonial tradition of white supremacism. And therefore, in order to exorcise, in order to, to expel our lingering uh, systemically racist mentality, we have to repudiate our colonial past. So I think it's the, it's the salience of the issue of racism um, uh, and the political usefulness of, of saying that uh, our colonial past is, is simply a litany of racism and oppression and exploitation uh, that makes it useful for um, anti-racist groups to, to make a great deal of fuss about our colonial history. That, that's my reading of the political motivation for the salience of the issue in Britain. But, but uh, I would not expect it to have some, quite the same salience, therefore, in countries not as exposed to American cultural influence through our common English language. Yes, and on, just just to kind of uh, extend this conversation as, uh, just a little bit longer, um, Felipe, do you uh, do you uh, envision maybe in the future the issue of race having, if not as much salience, then at least some salience in Spain as it does in Britain? It does. It, it doesn't seem there, there doesn't seem to be the same uh, conversation about race between Spain and its former colonies as the one that Britain is having uh, in the ways that, that Nigel has just described. Do, do you envision that changing? Well, people who want something out of Spain, such as you know, reparations, do play the race card. And I'm, I'm very sorry to say that racism does seem to be coming back in Spain as it does in many parts of the, the world. It's, it's very prominent you know, on the football terraces and in the gutters. Now, this is a very mm, disturbing development because I, I think Nigel's right to sense that historically racism hasn't been much of an, an issue in Spain. The Spanish Empire, racism was almost uh, non-existent. The Spaniards were much more concerned with snobbery than they were with, with race. If you were, if you were an indigenous you know, prince or princess or the, 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 the offspring of a, an Aztec or an Inca emperor, you, know, you were very welcome in Spanish society. And, of course, many um, uh, distinguished indigenous families took um, spouses from the colonial elite and forged the mestizo elite, the mixed race elite that effectively ruled most of the Spanish monarchy for most of the time. So racism wasn't a big issue. It, I think it was more of an issue in the British Empire simply because the British Empire was very largely, or the British Empire that we're talking about today, was very largely a 19th century phenomenon. And racism, as we now understand it, was very largely a 19th century um, pseudoscience. So there was more likelihood in principle for people to succumb to racist nonsense in the British context than there was in the uh, in the Spanish. But I do agree with Nigel that you have to separate the issue of racism from that of, of empire. They overlap, but they are different issues. And empire can be exempt from moral obloquy, whilst racism, you know, remains a subject of it. That, that, that's a perfectly, that's a perfectly reasonable dichotomy, which people ought to be uh, allowed to espouse if they wish. Yes, and uh, Nigel, uh, jumping right into the, uh, the the British case, you claim in your book, uh, quote, that there was no essential motivation behind the British Empire. Can you maybe elaborate? And how do you think this? Uh, what do you think? Do you think this statement can be made about other empires, like like the Spanish or the French? The reason why the question of whether there was an essential motivation behind the British Empire is is this. Um, um, Without surprise, it was, well, there's no surprise that, that the British Empire, like any other empire, like any other state over a long period of time, presided over uh, goods and evils of various kinds. Um, and it, it's, it's impossible rationally to say that um, um, in the British case or any other case, more good uh, uh, um, accumulated than, than evil. Um, you can't say that. Um, but what, what the, the radical critics, the, the anti-colonialists, the decolonizers want to argue is that um, um, even if the, the British did build railways in India, 
and even if they did spread modern medicine in Africa, the British Empire was essentially racist and essentially exploitative and essentially given to um, extreme and wanton violence. Uh, and in the same way that we would say that, uh, that the fact that the uh, Nazi regime presided over the building of autobahns does not compensate for Auschwitz. Uh, so they want to say that whatever um, benefits the British brought to the world, it, it can't compensate for this essentially uh, malicious, racist institution. That, that's why the issue matters. So I want to say uh, in response uh, that there was no single essential motivation for the British Empire. No one woke up in London one sunny morning in 1600 or 1700 or 1800 and said, oh, let's go and conquer the world because, because we like conquering the world. No, uh, I mean, the history of the British Empire uh, began, I guess, off the coast of North America, partly in order to, to, um, uh, to, to harry Spanish shipping uh, at a time when Protestant England and uh, Catholic Spain were at loggerheads. Uh, but then in the 1600s, you get the, the Puritans going to New England, partly to escape uh, religious oppression as they uh, felt it in England. Uh, the East India Company goes eastwards to do what? To trade. Um, and then in the 19th century, you do get significant uh, humanitarian uh, movements that, that lobby uh, the empire in London and elsewhere to uh, to uh, protect native peoples. Uh, the the uh, movement to abolish slavery was, was of course, of course a, a famous instance of that humanitarian movement. So, uh, no, you can't say there was anything, any essential motivation for the empire. It, it, it varied according to, to individuals, it varied according to times and places. And I'm pretty sure, uh, I mean, I know something about uh, French and Spanish empires and, and Belgian and Dutch ones, I'm pretty sure you could say the same of, of them too. I mean, if one wants to take the case of the of the uh, Nazi expansion in Europe, westward and eastward, there you could probably say that that um, that uh, massively murderous racism was at the heart uh, of the of the enterprise because of of Adolf Hitler's uh, uh, particular obsessions because. Even during uh, um, the Second World War, the Nazi regime was willing to divert resources from the military effort, uh, uh, particularly against the Soviet Union, in order to pursue the final solution against the Jews. Uh, so it, it does seem as if you could say in that instance, there was a kind of essentially uh, um, malicious and racist motivation at the heart of, of the Nazi empire. So may maybe, uh, maybe you could say the same of, the, of Genghis Khan and the Mongols, I don't know. Uh, but I think in, in most, in the case of most long-standing uh, states, uh, whether they're, they're simply national or imperial, uh, you'll find the motivations uh, are, are quite various. Yes, yes, Felipe. I, I was just going to ask you about uh, what, whether you had any reactions to this, and whether in Spain's case, if you know, I'm, I'm instantly reminded, uh, you know, on the question of whether there was a uh, sort of. Uh, there was a, uh, a guiding uh, objective or a guiding uh, principle for uh, colonialism. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, el requerimiento, the, uh, the 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 laws of Burgos. Uh, is 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 in the Spanish case? Is there more of a case that uh, that um, that there was a, a sort of a unitary uh, purpose behind colonialism? Well, I'd add two things. I think to what Nigel has said. The First is that if you are going to talk about motivation, you can't only talk about the motivation of white conquistadores and colonists. You have to talk about the motives of the indigenous collaborators without whom no empire, and especially no pre-industrial empire, was possible. And to take the Spanish case, you know, the Spanish had this, this vast range of, of territories um, which formed part of what they called their global monarchy, 
And of course, it was quite impossible even to maintain effective communications amongst them, let alone, you know, to rule them with a rod of iron. I think many of these pre-industrial empires particularly may have laid very heavy hands at their centres, but they stretched very feeble fingertips towards their peripheries. And in order to understand them, you have to shed the idea that empires are powerful. Pre-industrial empires particularly were very weak states, and they depended on collaboration to survive and to function at all. So you have to ask about the motives of the indigenous collaborators who very often voluntarily joined the Spanish monarchy. In fact, in Mesoamerica, most of the communities that joined the Spanish monarchy did so entirely peacefully by diplomatic negotiation without, in most cases, without any blows and in, in, in others with very few blows ever being um, exchanged. And I think that's the really interesting problem. Yeah, what was it about the Spanish monarchy, to take that example, that appealed to these guys? And I'm afraid to some extent it was the infrastructure. They didn't have railways in those days. You know, the Spanish monarchy put an awful lot of uh, investment into building roads and, and bridges and water supply and ports and defences and maintaining missions and hospitals. They built literally thousands of, of hospitals. I don't think most people uh, you know, know that, and those hospitals are entirely for the benefit of the, the poor because their clientele was almost entirely indigenous people and, uh, and to some extent slaves. So huge infrastructure investment was part of it. And I think the other main thing was that the empire opened up huge new economic opportunities for existing elites and communities. And you see, if you read the, the documents, most of which are actually in indigenous languages, and many of them still very uh, understudied. So if you read them, you can see indigenous communities opting to align themselves with the Spanish Empire because they could see that they could get tremendous advantages and benefits um, from it. So I think that's the first thing to add. Look at the motives of indigenous people who participated in these, these empires, as well as those of the white intruders. And I think that, you know, the second thing to say is that in the Spanish case, although I, I don't know what one would mean by an essentialist motivation, there certainly was an overarching justification, which of course was religious. Now, under the Habsburg dynasty, the only justification that they had for their power within Europe was a grant, you know, from the, the Pope and their role as defenders of the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, and when they got to the Americas, they justified their presence on the same grounds. And that's why in the Spanish Empire, the only thing that they really put a lot of effort into changing in indigenous culture was the religion. Very broadly speaking, they were, they were very successful at that, not because they were tremendously powerful and could impose it on anybody, but because it was one of the very few aspects of Spanish culture to which many, indeed most, indigenous subject communities responded very positively and really liked. Uh, yes, and I, I wonder whether, uh, uh, you know, if you have any uh, 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 response to this, uh, Nigel, uh, uh, the next question was going to look at slavery, which I think is also kind of lurking in, in the background here. Uh, you, you address slavery in, in chapter two of your book, uh, and it's, it's also a question where I think uh, Felipe was earlier uh, alluding to the fact that uh, there have been traditionally Protestant critics of the Spanish Empire that have laid slavery at the feet of the Spanish Empire that have claimed that, uh, that the Spaniards were the real architects of the transatlantic uh, slave trade. But whether or not you, you agree with that, uh, Nigel, you, you, you claim that we should not speak of colonialism and slavery in the same breadth, that they're actually two rather different phenomena. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, well, just to, to speak to the um, um, point about uh, British criticism of Spain, um, I, I'm aware that in the 18th century, at least, uh, maybe before, uh, uh, the British tended to regard uh, Spanish uh, colonizers as um, extraordinarily brutal. I, I think that, that was probably unfair uh, because it's quite clear that English colonizers on the uh, eastern coast of, of North America um, in the 1600s were often very, very uh, brutal and violent. Um, but uh, to the main point about why it is that we can't sensibly 
uh, speak about colonialism and slavery in the same breath, as has been com common in Britain since Black Lives Matter uh, came over here two, two, three years ago. Uh, it's very simple. Um, that, uh, yes, from about 1650, maybe a bit before then, until um, the early 1800s, uh, some British people were involved in slave trading. Some people uh, did own slaves in the West Indies and in the American colonies. Um, but um, from 1807, uh, the British abolished the slave trade throughout their, their imperial territories. And then from 1833, they abolished the institution of slavery within their own territories. And from um, 1807, um, uh, the British were involved in uh, leading the world, I think, in, in uh, suppressing both the trade and then later the institution uh, from Brazil uh, across Africa, um, in India and in Malaysia. Um, so, so the irony is that uh, the, the bit of the British Empire that is far closest to us is actually um, persistently about anti-slavery, not slavery. So we cannot identify British colonialism with slavery. The reason that some people want us to identify colonialism and slavery goes back to my earlier point, that this is really about a contemporary uh, um, um, controversy over present racism. So uh, the reason that um, uh, activists and certain historians uh, want to identify colonialism with slavery is they want to say that Britain is systemically racist now. It's because of uh, our continuing veneration for uh, um, colonial heroes. And col colonialism was all about racism and white supremacism, which is why we need to, to jettison our colonial past. Um, but historically, that's just nonsense, because as I say, uh, from 1807 for 150 uh, uh, years, the British were committed anti-slavers. Um, and we, should, we, we also need to, to put the, the slaving sins of our European ancestors in perspective here, because um, slavery and slave trading uh, was an ancient institution and it was universal. Uh, not just Euro Europeans got into it. I think it was, it was the Portuguese in the 1440s who started uh, trading in African slaves and taking them off to the um, Atlantic islands. Um, but before then, uh, Africans were trading uh, other African slaves uh, to the Romans and then to the Arabs. Uh, in the 1700s, the Comanche in the southwest of what is now the US ran a vast slave economy. Um, and... Um, I was in uh, North Carolina in January. I went to visit the Museum of the State of North Carolina, of the, of the history of the state of North Carolina. And there I learned that um, on the eve of the American Civil War in 1860, um, there were 30,000 freed slaves in the state of North Carolina. And some of those kept slaves of their own. Uh, my point here is the, the, the institution of slavery and of trading slaves was, was, was common. And what is extraordinary about um, um, the early 1800s is that a number of European countries, I think France was the first to abolish the, the, the slave trade, although Napoleon then reversed it. Denmark in 1804, Denmark in 1804 abolished the, the slave trade. England followed, uh, Britain followed three years later. Um, in other words, but European countries, partly because of, of their Christian heritage, partly the Enlightenment, were the first states, to my knowledge, in the history of the world to abolish the trade and then the institution. Uh, that's extraordinary, but uh, um, for, for political reasons, um, some people want us to forget that. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sorry to have to agree with Nigel. It's a very <laughs> boring podcast. And usually, you know, I, I, I disagree with everybody. And if somebody agrees with me, I immediately change my own opinion. Uh, but <laughs> Nigel is right about all that. I would have want to make a, a distinction, which is obviously implicit in what he said, between the question of slavery and the question of the, the treatment of indigenous populations. Now, obviously, you know, the Spanish and the British occupied very different environments in the New World. Uh, and uh, you can see that the result of that was a very different series of policies and strategies for dealing with the indigenous population. Because very broadly speaking, in the formerly 
Spanish parts of the Americas, the indigenous people are still there. They've survived. There's no extermination. There's no displacement of entire populations. And in the English-speaking parts of the Americas, the uh, indigenous populations disappeared. They were expelled or exterminated. But the difference for that isn't it's not it's not because you know Nigel's ancestors were nastier people than mine. It's because the environments were different. The Spanish Empire needed the services, the participation, the economies of the indigenous people, and they needed those to survive intact. Whereas the British were operating in a different environment where indigenous labor was useless, and they needed to bring in labor from Europe and Africa to replace it. And so the indigenous populations were pretty much useless to the British, but they were absolutely vital to the Spanish. That's why in the Spanish zones, the indigenous population survived and is still there. It's not because the English were wicked and the Spanish were were good. I think wickedness and goodness are probably equally distributed, you know, like all human populations. But the needs that the colonial uh, administrators and settlers had were con- absolutely contrasting. And that's for environmental reasons. Yes, and. Um... And well, t- turning on to, to the to the next question, um, in in the following chapter, uh, Nigel, you claim that uh, quote imperial superiority did take the form of unfair, disparaging prejudice against natives na- native peoples, but later on, you 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 also claim that it also contained respect, admiration, and genuine, well informed, costly benevolence. Uh, can you elaborate? How do you, how do you go about parsing the the good from from the evil in, in sort of imperial attitudes? Yes, um, and here uh, Felipe may have something rather different to say about Spain because I, I do sense the, in fact, he's he's hinted that the um, the um, issue of racism in the Spanish Empire was not the same kind of issue that uh, uh, it was in the British Empire. So I think the first one thing I want to say about racism is. Um, Please let's remember, as Felipe has just said, um, uh, virtues and vices are pro- probably pretty evenly distributed among all human cultures. And racism was not a, a European invention. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, and in my book I quote this: in 1940, um, the Irish novelist Gerald Hanley was in British uniform in uh, Somaliland, in the north east of the African continent. And he was commanding Somali troops, uh, whom he could not persuade to take orders from a Bantu African NCO because, according to Somalis, Bantus, in their eyes, were natural slaves. Right? So this is black-on-black racism. So let's be clear, racism was not a European invention or a British one. Then, um, secondly, um, yes, one one cannot uh, uh, survey the British Empire without coming across uh, a lot of um, uh, objectionable racist prejudice. Uh, sometimes it was it was uh, simply patronizing behavior. Sometimes it was rude. Uh, sometimes it was the, the natural vice of, uh, of uh, a victorious imperial uh, dominating peoples um, um, to, to, toward arrogance. Sometimes it, sometimes it, it was more vicious. Um, and uh, in the second half of the 19th century, you do get um, so-called scientific or biological theories of race, according to which uh, certain non-white races are regarded as naturally uh, inferior. Uh, and, and these peoples uh, are incapable of becoming uh, more developed and, and civilized. You, you do get that. Okay, so that's all on the, on the negative side. On the other hand, um, the the uh, highly popular movement for the abolition of slavery, which began in in England uh, in the late 1700s, and I say highly popular because the before the abolition of slavery by the British Parliament in 1807, uh, there were a number of of mass petitions signed by, uh, according to some estimates, up to one third of the male population of the country. So popular was it. Uh, th- this this movement to abolish slavery was premised on. Uh, the the immorality of um, some human beings owning others as property because um, under God 
uh, all human beings are ultimately equal regardless of race. So, so the whole movement was premised on a notion of, of racial equality. And as I say, that uh, the abolitionist uh, movement um, uh, then led to um, um, empire-wide suppression of slavery for 150 years, again, on the assumption of, of the human equality of all people, uh, regardless of race. So even in the late 19th century, when you do get people espousing uh, the pessimistic, biological racist view that some, some races are forever condemned to be inferior, um, in the Canadian Parliament, for example, when, when those views were voiced, according to one historian I've read, whenever were those views, those biological racist views were, were, were voiced, uh, other members of Parliament would stand up and say uh, and decry such uh, racism as un-British and un-Christian. So, so the biological racist view was present uh, and did, did have, have uh, some hold over folk, but it was never universally accepted. Um, so so the, the, the British record on race, I want to say, is a mixed one. Um, and, and, and those of us who think racism is abhorrent can find uh, persistent strands of, of anti-racism uh, within uh, the, the thinking of British imperial officials uh, as well as, as lobbying missionaries. Yes, and w with that question, and always mindful of the limited time that we have, uh, we've we've exhausted the the hour that we had for for our conversation. I just wanted to to thank uh, Felipe and Nigel again for for agreeing uh, to uh, to speak on uncommon decency. And I want to remind our audience as well of uh, uh, Nigel's book, uh, Colonialism: A Moral Reckoning, which they can purchase uh, on Amazon or wherever books are are sold. But but again, uh, professors, thank you very much for engaging with us and, uh, and see you at the next episode. So, uh, Professor Felipe Fernandez Armesto and Nigel Beger are both out. Uh, Francois, even though you weren't uh, present at the recording, what did, would you, you've been able to listen to uh, the entire conversation. What did you think about it? Yeah, um, fortunately, because of log logistics, it was uh, it was just super. Um, I caught up over conversation, and uh, congratulations! I thought it was a tremendous, tremendous conversation on empire. Um, I'm what I found really interesting about it is adding complexity and nuance to the question of empire and colonialism, because as as you kind of rightly point out. We tend to see nowadays as empire and colonialism and slavery as one big bundle kind of bad deeds that we've done in the past, which are all put together. But what they do here is actually break down saying, actually, you know, the biggest anti-slavery power in the world in the 19th century, in the 18th century, was the, was the British Empire. Um, and wherever they went, they, they pushed very hard to make sure slavery was abolished. And it reminds me of this fantastic book I read a few years ago from Neil Ferguson um, on the British Empire, which is super interesting. It's one of those kind of, you know, one of the moments where you kind of close a book and like, oh, wow, that's so interesting, kind of a, a new perspective on, 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 on everything. Essentially, it talks about how the first wave of British imperialism was kind of very much accidental, very much more focused on trade. So the first wave of imperial administrators in India, for example, were people who were actually adjusting to local customs, um, who were imposing their own kind of uh, cultural codes, their legal codes as much, or just here to make sure that the colonies will be profitable and send goods back to the, to the motherland. But what's really interesting is, in doing so, they close their eyes on some local customs which we know today we would think are, 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 are unacceptable. You know, slavery... Um, you know, famous trope of of women being burnt to to burnt at the same time as their dead husbands, um, all that kind of stuff, which we would find morally repugnant, they kind of accept it. And so the second wave of colonial administrators came in and were imposing their moral values. They were imposing Christianity. They were imposing kind of Western cultural habits on the local population. But at the same time, it's kind of a new wave, much more idealistic wave of people were also the ones fighting against uh, slavery. They're also fighting against all those practices that we, should, we all rightfully condemn nowadays. So it, it was, I just thought it was such an interesting conversation on, on nuance and complexity and understanding that, you know, even phenomenons which we condemn nowadays, such as empire, actually were a force for good in some contexts. So it's just, 
I think a great way to kind of have a more rounded approach to all those conversations. Yes, definitely. And what did you think if I, if I'm, if I can ask you, uh, what did you think about the, uh, kind of, uh, ongoing, uh, uh, dispute over, uh, whether the British empire or, or the Spanish empire was more or less cruel at different points in time? Did you feel like there, there was a good ba balance of views between, uh, Felipe's views who argued at the very start, Felipe said, uh, you know, the degree of scrutiny has been historically has been much greater on uh, the Spanish Empire just by by dint of having been a longer uh, span of time. Um, did you were you satisfied by sort of how that issue was revolved was resolved in the conversation? So I thought one point really interesting point that was brought up by Felipe, um, which is something I never really considered before, is the idea that the Spanish imperialism ended up being softer than the British imperialism, which is not something I would have expected coming to that conversation. And I'm happy to hear challenge going forward, but the idea was Spanish imperialism needed kind of a labor force, a workforce to be able to, to, to work for them. Whereas British colonialism really couldn't care less as long as you get, you know, all those goods coming back to, to London. Um, so de facto, the economic incentives made that the Spanish empire end up being less brutal than the English empire. Again, I, I, I was a little stunned hearing that because the first time I heard that, I heard that argument, um, but just for always kind of interesting perspective on this conversation. Yes. And um, um, let me ask you about, um, you know, the sort of the, um, 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 let me ask you about the point that Nigel made, which is that, um, that the British, case is being subject to more scrutiny, uh, if only because uh, it is part of the Anglosphere and it gets a lot of this uh, cultural, noxious cultural influence from the United States over on, on, on racial issues, right? So the UK gets this uh, sort of like, it imports this sort of racial politics from the United States and that then uh, that that uh, adds to the scrutiny of the British Empire. Were you were you satisfied by that point? I think so. I there was an article a few weeks ago, or maybe a few days ago, from Unheard, which was provocatively titled "Is France Too Sexy for Trans Wars?" Um, and so I thought it was quite funny. I I, I you know I'm not sure I, I agreed with with all the argument, but I think. On those issues, as often, there is a kind of linguistic highway between the United States and the UK that, you know, linguistic and cultural highway that you don't get with, or at least not as direct in countries like France or Spain, for example, because there's not only kind of a physical act of translation, but kind of adjusting a rhetoric to kind of the mental code that goes with language. Um, and so I, I think that makes sense. And they're right to point out that Often, when we talk about empire in those conversations, we don't talk actually about empire. We talk about white imperialism. We don't talk about, you know, the, the Peruvian, the Inca empire in Peru. We don't talk about the Genghis uh, Khan's empire. We don't talk about the, the Chinese empire. We don't talk about Shaka Zulu in, in, in South Africa. We talk about British empire, French empire, Spanish empire, rinse and repeat. So... I, I, I agree with you. It's coming from, you know, um, to be fair, there's a strong decolonial movement in French, French academia, which then went to the United States and has been sent back to us kind of in a recycled way. But yes, I, th I think language, language and proximity, cultural proximity is a big part of that conversation. But I was actually interested to see a little bit about um, Felipe's perspective on the way this conversation about empire is going in Spain. And I know the conversation in Britain quite well, I know the conversation in France quite well, I know the conversation in America quite well, but I would love to actually to hear, you know, the Spanish perspective on the question of empire. Is it is it is it a case of, you know, of, of total shame or are people quite divided between the right and the left? Is it more mixed? How do people see the legacy of uh, Spain's empire? Was it because, is it much further, further back? You know, France still has, you know, the African colonial empire, which is much more recent, and Spain's colonial empire, you know, is 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 much more back in the um, back behind. 
how do, how does Spain approach these quiz questions? Quite interesting to get your perspective here. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Felipe's uh, answer would be that uh, th there isn't quite as much uh, racial uh, undertones to the politics of the former Spanish colonies as there is in Britain's former colonies. So, uh, I mean, you 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 are getting to some extent, in, in very recently, you are getting. Uh, people who are sort of riding this wave that is coming from the Anglosphere, but th that are riding this wave in the Spanish-speaking world over something they call indigenismo, the indigenism, in the indigenous uh, uh, sort of identities. Um, and they're largely trying to stoke this sort of racial animus amongst uh, the uh, indigenous communities of these countries against the white uh, colonial uh, identity. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say there. It's there, there's not nearly as much animus there. I mean, uh, traditionally, one thing you've got to realize about the Spanish Empire is it was a much more sort of universalist religious empire, right? Mm -hmm. um, the early colonial uh, rulers of the Americas saw the indigenous pop populations primarily as people that could be converted to the faith. Um, so there, there was this sort of missionary universalism. Uh, rather than this sort of a predatory, uh, extractive, uh, economic domination that you that you saw, I think primarily in in other latitudes in in in, 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 well, in yeah, there's always going to be a bit of both. I was listening to the Rest is History podcast, which I highly recommend to those of you who are interested in history. Uh, the two hosts are very funny. So, but they were doing a series on Christopher Columbus uh, a few weeks ago, which was really fascinating. And something which, are, you know, often when we make the history of, of imperialism, we think simply kind of, you know, greed, self-interest, the rest of it. But as they point out, point out quite, quite rightfully, you don't understand the history of the Spanish Empire, especially if you don't understand the intense religiosity that was pushing them to do so. That also means at the same time, you know, you had those crimes, you had all those things going on on the side, which definitely happened. But there was this kind of religious strife, which nowadays we kind of struggle to understand because we're not those people anymore. We're not that religious. But if you don't see the religious element in the colonial endeavors of many European countries, especially Spain, then you're really missing a big part of the picture here. And a lot of people saying, you know, religion is kind of a post, you know, ad hoc justification of imperialism and crime. I don't think so. I think actually a lot of people were driven by a sense of doing God's work, which we simply cannot quite understand because we're no longer in that era. Yeah. Okay. So thanks a lot, Jorge, for handling all of this. If you want to hear the extended conversation with our two guests, um, with some very interesting, insightful co comparisons between the Spanish and the British Empire, you can do it by joining us on Patreon for as little as five euros a month. You can also get the episodes 24 hours ahead of their usual publication, if you like. So um, thank you so much, Jorge. Thank you so much to both Felipe and Nigel. If you want to buy Nigel's book, um, it should be in the description below. Uh, it's been a tremendous conversation starter all across um, Europe about what the moral aspects, conversations of empire were at the time and how we should understand them nowadays. So I highly recommend you give it a look. Thanks, Jorge, and to everyone, I say see you next week. See you next week. Thank you.